Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday morning. I don't have anybody yet for the Haftarah, but I'm going to do something on the tefillah because I happen to come across something. And uh, therefore, I'm going to make this the tefillah podcast for the week. As always, with the generous sponsorship of Mishpacha Stefanski. It's also a big day here in this house because my son Shmuley, Shmuel Zion and his wife Dina, just had a baby boy a few hours ago. So Mazel Tov. And uh, anyway, here we go. Um, I happen to notice something very interesting. That's what I'm sharing with you. Uh, I was looking up these halachas about brachas at Tova Meitim because we had some wine at the table on uh, this last Shabbos and so forth. You know, there's rules about <clears throat> the bracha tova meitiv, which you, you know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Where, um, it, you know, there are rules governing it. Like, when do you shechiona, when do you tova meitiv as a baby boy, baby girl, this, that, and the other. And one of the classic things out there is if you have, you know, a bottle of wine, then you bring another bottle of wine, and the second one's better than the first, or at least not worse, then you don't make a big pick up on the second bottle, but you make a, a tova meitiv. Nowadays that we live in the world of uh, Feinschmeckers and all that, I'm sure people must know this. When I was a kid, you never heard of this. The reason you never heard of it is, who had wines? He had wine, <laughs> you know? And the wine was the Malaga, you know, my day was the Shapiro's and stuff like that. You know, that, that that's what wine was. And nobody drank wine in a meal. You make kiddish, <laughs> you know? That's what it was. That was my generation growing up. Nowadays it's a different world. Do 10 million wines and everything like that, which means it's more like it was in the times of Chazal, when there really were different people had different wines, and you had the fine schmeckers of yesteryear, a thousand years ago, and therefore they made these different brachas, you know, besides the great people governor. But if you do something that you have, my like, wow, this is great, do Hatova Metiv. There's a variation on the Tov Metiv, say in the benching, meaning, according to the Jewish tradition, as I'm sure you know, that um, after Bar Koch rebellion, the Romans uh, not only had killed so many people, but they wouldn't let them bury the bodies. And uh, there's even a version of it in the matters that uh, that they constructed a fence in a certain place out of human bodies. Get it? Uh, that was the real Roman way to stick it to the Jews, because in our religion, leaving a body uh, unburied is considered egregious. There's a famous toast. I just did this in college, actually. You know, when they talk about uh Abrius, you know, so they say, uh, a mace mitzvah, you can do kodabiyas. They say that even somebody can forego doing a carbon Pesach, for example, to take care of mace mitzvah. Even a coin, a nazir, as a tosis, it says you can't necessarily be madama from there to other cases of kodabiyas because leaving a body unburied is an extreme uh, case, ganai gadol, an extreme case of, uh, of nivel a mace, uh, a breach of kodabiyas. So you can imagine what it was like when the Romans... Uh, did that to the Jews, thousands of bodies. And the famous story is that eventually, a different, when the next emperor came along, so it was like that for years. So the story is that the bodies didn't rot or something like that, and eventually they were allowed to be buried. And to that, for us, that was a big deal. And that's when they, as Tubav, I think, and that's when they made the Tova, made the Bracha Tova Metiv. 
Yeah, I don't know if they made exactly the same one to use in benching. That's a variation. You know, but just words. Right, that they allowed the bodies to get buried. By us, it's a big deal. This culture, as you know, survives in the state of Israel today. Correct? I mean, the Tzahal will go to any lengths to get a body back and give it burial. We know this is like a big deal. Matter of fact, the Arabs, the Mamzerim, know this exactly. And when they have one of these Gaza wars that happens, unfortunately, from time to time, one of the main objectives of the Hamas and the others is to get to capture a body, capture somebody alive or dead, even dead, and, you know, when they fight in these tunnels and all, you know what I'm talking about. When they fight in these tunnels, the, which is the new reality because they're digging tunnels right and left, one of the things they want to do is either pull an Israeli guy. Remember, I forget who it was. Was it a dark gold? I don't remember exactly the name. They, you know, they tried to pull the body in and the Tzahal came and pulled him out and so forth. You know, because by that, they know they could trade to give us a dead body back for burial. We would give them live prisoners, you know, live terrorists. So it's a very Jewish sort of thing. And therefore, the Jews felt a great deal of um, of uh, satisfaction and relief at the, the fact that they got to bury the bodies. Like I said, in another culture, it wouldn't make any sense. This is specifically Jewish culture <clears throat> that they got the right to to bury the you know to to bury the the the, the Jews, carry Israel. Uh, it's actually very interesting. I think I told you this years ago. I don't remember exactly when there was a time when Israel gave like a hundred prisoners, uh, terrorists back live terrorists, to give back like two, three bodies. You remember that? And I remember at the time, I was going crazy. I said, how can you give back live terrorists who are just going to cause more trouble? And all you're getting back is a dead body, which is rotten anyway. Uh, and I said, this is going to encourage the Arabs, the, the Hamas and the terrorists, and it'll validate them, and we'll uh, uh, make them look like heroes, and they'll laugh their heads off saying, we got people back who can continue to fight, and the Israelis just got back some dead bodies, and this will be a terrible blow on the Israeli morale. One second. Hi, I got interrupted. Listen, um, I remember what I was saying was that I, I thought when they traded those dead bodies for the live terrorists, long ago when they did that, that this would be a tremendous blow to the Israeli morale, which after all is the goal of all terrorism, because terrorism by definition is a mind game to try to get at your minds. You know, terrorism means you don't have the conventional power to attack the other side, we try to do it through terror, which is psychological. And when they did that prisoner exchange, I was like very, uh. and to my happy surprise, I was genuinely surprised, it didn't work out that way. The Israeli morale actually went up. I remember I followed the story closely years ago. People actually felt good that, that the, the Almona now sees the body, they buried him in a Jewish cemetery, you know. It, it, it didn't have the effect of hurting the morale. So that's who we are. So don't be surprised if thousands of years ago, they made a whole bracha toba mekdiv on this. Now, uh, so, I came across it yesterday, I guess, because I was looking at the Kitzur Shulchanar on this talk, and I I have a nice edition of Kitzur, I have several good editions of Kitzur Shulchanar, uh, especially the Sharma Zion Balacha, but I won't get into that now. And I got a year or two ago, the art scroll, Kitzur Shulchanar, which is actually very good, because not only is it a good translation, but they have very good footnotes. They compare everything with the Igris Moshe. And sometimes with the Mishnah Barab. I happen to like it. It's in English, you know. So the long and the short of it is, I was looking up this thing of the uh, 
tell but make the different rules because there are a lot of rules and regulations. You know, you have this, this kind of wine, this kind of wine. We're in the table at the same time. The second one, like the first one, and so forth and so on. Are there other people at the table? There are various halachas, as there always is the case, with the Tov Meitim. And I saw he said something along the lines, check out the Meshachachma. I said, the Meshachachma? Oh. So I looked in the Meshachachma, and I found something quite interesting. On the Pasuk, it's a whole arichas. But it's no get to us, and this is the reason I'm saying it now, especially this around the time of the year, they have Israel Independence Day, you know, whatever you hold from that. But in other words, it's a time for reflection. And uh, like I say, in the middle of it, he says, this is the Meshachach I'm talking about. Right? And why Dafka Yain? Al Shinu Yain, Circle of Archimedes. Zep Pella, Madur Rak Al Yain. That's a fair question, because we don't have a rule like you have a brand new steak one of these things you see in the Mishpacham, the uh, fancy ads, that bring this kind of new thing to the table. Why don't you say what Tov Theoretically, you should, because you have bounty and good, Atov you know. But we don't. It's by Yain. And the Meshachachma, right, Mary Simcha offers his own historical interpretation. That's what caught my interest. The guy, art school guy said like this, just check out the Meshachachma. Art school didn't want to go into the history stuff. But the Meshachachma does. And he says like this, <clears throat> the, this is his uh, interpretation of history. The Kol Birchas HaMozen Niskan, Niskan Al-Bin Yehuma, Asher Nifchas Tzivchar Tzivchar Betzaz HaShkocha. That when it comes to benching, if you think about it, it's a national thing. It's a Klal Yisrael thing. And it refers to the evolution of Klal Yisrael, which is something I've spoken about many times in the podcast. I think I did it the other day yesterday maybe, when I say Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't born in a minute and he didn't know everything over the course of the Book of Shemos and Book of Bamidbar and so forth, he learns new things about God. He's evolving. Right? So Moshe, by the time he ended his life, was in a different Madriga than he was 40 years earlier. And the same thing with the Jewish people. When they left Egypt, they were holding by one level. When they hit Harsina, another level. When they went through the Golden Calf, that, that changed them. They went through 40 years in the desert. That changed them. And so obviously, it is, you know, like we say, it's not the destiny of the Jewish people to move from A to Z in, a, in, in one flash. But rather, it's a long, complicated process. That's just our destiny. So he says, The whole thing was as far as the Binyan Uma, which I think he means the evolution of the Jewish people into a nation. That you see by divine providence it's meant to be tzivchar tzivchar, little by little. Whereas we say in English, evolve. You understand? It's not something that goes from, you know, this to that. But it's a long process. You see, for example, that's why they had mon over a long time in the desert. The 40 years they spent in the desert was an educative thing. The younger generation grew up different than the older generation. The 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 you know they notice they had to spiritually evolve. I hate to use these cliches. and eventually they got to Israel and had their own country, which obviously had to change them. 
And later on, hundreds of years later, they got Yerushalayim, and that had to change them. And obviously, that had to change them. So in other words, the benching recalls all that. You understand? Uh, it recalls all that. Now, we're going to contrast that now. The Berchus Amazon, on the one hand, was Atova Metiv, which is, unlike the benching, is not ancient. The benching is in Ozderaisa, so that means that the way it was set up, the, the brachas, the formulation, all the rest of it, was, you know, from bias Rishon, you know, way, way back when, and reflected the reality of that early period, the first thousand years of Jewish history, let's say, or whatever, in which the Jews were a, a regular people in the sense they had their own country, they had a base of Mish, all the rest of it, and they were, when they benched, it meant that literally, you understand? Now, now we've reached the full fullness of our national fulfillment, you might say. We have a country, we have a base of we have all the rest of it. The only thing is we shouldn't screw it up, but we have what we need. By contrast, the uh is not from the Bayes region. It's not even from the Bayes It's post-Bar Kochba rebellion. It's Maharugi Betar. Right? So it's a later development and therefore reflects sensibilities of a later period in Jewish history when things were no longer good. So this is what he means by Tzivchar Tzivchar, that it's, you know, the Jew, to follow the destiny of Jewish people is going to zigzag. You understand? At the end, you hope you'll get to Mashiach time, but meanwhile, it's a zigzag. And at the time they're talking about, things were pretty bad. As a matter of fact, as he puts it, the Jewish people were in like a certain collective depression because of the objective reality of the Roman occupation and destruction based on Mikdash. And therefore, the Brach Atova Metiv was sent as a Philip, F-I-L-I-P, as a Philip, to uh, give the Jewish people what's the word, a more optimistic uh, uh, a vision of the future. Listen to what he says. Omnam Atova Metiv, Tignu Alkiyam Ha'uma Habodedes B'Moadeho Ligos Holeches Bagolas Alpayim Shana. They made the bracha to give the Jewish people a shot in the arm to en- enable them um, to survive 2,000 years in Gaulish, meaning that they should feel that, that, the, uh, that they should be celebrating the miracle of Jewish survival in the Gaulish, which is quite a miracle. It's of a different nature. So the benching, isn't this interesting? The benching is, I'll use the word Zionist, you know. In other words, it's celebrating that we have Eretz Yisrael. The Tova Meitim is the opposite. It's that we survive as a people in the absence of a territory. Okay? It was after Bar Kochwa. Tiknal Kim Ha'uma, the survival of the people, Habodedes, which is now alone, meaning doesn't have a country, but Moadeho, Lios Holeches, Begola Alpayim Shonam, Vikayemes, Barucho, Behoda, Vitivarto. And the survival of the Jewish people as a people. Barucho, Behodo, Vitifarto. We're not some little, you know, group. We're a nation. As the prophet says. And all the efforts against us have not failed. All the weapons are broken. Right? This is what a Tova Meitiv is about. Now, if I can find somebody tomorrow, I want to do a talk along these lines about the significance of Israel and for Zionism, against Zionism. You know, I want to locate it in a historical context, but I'll get to that tomorrow.
hopefully. Now, this is the Meshach Chachma talking. After Chorban, Beis HaMikdash, Choshvu ki kiyuma built up shari. Isn't that a fantastic? He says, this is from Mary Simchot, Jewish people were depressed. And basically, they had um, zero hopes for the future of surviving as a people. Built up shari. Vasido lichlos blinded katsonim below terbezodim. And the Jewish people thought that what lies ahead of them is to be gypsies, so on him. Notice, the gypsies have a survivable identity. They're low, they're, uh, 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 yeah, nothing glorious about them. Uh, the opposite. So notice, some crazy little sect, I'm not exactly sure what the right word is, some wandering little junk. And that's not who we are, Kashiro. And the reason the Jews were depressed, keep it better, no Shalad this was, and this is fantastic, this was the result of the popping of the bubble of Bar Kokhba. Even the Gedolim fell for it. So I'll use the example, it's not the same thing, but I'll use the example of Shabtai Tzvi. All these rabbis, and there were plenty, put their trust that Shabtai Tzvi is the real thing. And then the whole thing busted. Right? In 1666. We know that, I mean, a lot of Jews, rogue Jewish people, believed in Shabtai Tzvi for five minutes. And then what happened? And then it turned out it wasn't there. So there was a huge depression. Now, in the, the Sabatian, it expressed itself in a certain fashion. So, Ramir Simcha suggesting, or Samech is suggesting, that, again, people like Rabbi Kiva and the others said, Bar Kokhba is a Mashiach. And he wasn't. And so, what was it like mentally and psychologically for the Klai Yisrael when that fell through? I mean, if you can't trust Rabbi Kiva, you know, it's true. Now, don't give me some frummy dummy answer. Well, it could have been, but the door wasn't right, all the rest of it. That didn't work for a lot of people, I'm sure. You know, that kind of post-facto kind of uh, theological, you know, reasoning. People said, we blew it. It means that we're not destined to have a Mashiach at all. Omnam. So therefore, they were depressed. And now here you are to Chazal. Now, Rabbi Kiva, of course, was killed. As we all know, sorry, Rabbi Malchus. Here you are, the successors of Akiva. That next generation of the Tanoim and so forth trying to hold the fort and put things together under the uh, difficult conditions of Roman occupation. That's why I like it. It's very historical. It's suggestive, anyway. And therefore, Barakoch Rebellion was Hadrian, the Emperor Hadrian. And he was there for another couple years. Uh, and then he died. I mean, if I remember correctly, Barakoch was like 135, 136 BC. And I think Hadrian was already dead by 140, if I remember correctly. Uh, so then you had the next guy, Antoninus Pius. Uh, and I think he's the one who uh, gave him permission to bury the bodies. So when they saw, to their surprise, that Hadrian was followed by a guy who was better than him. So basically, you're under Hitler. And then after Hitler dies, which was a terrible period to be under Hitler. And then when Hitler dies, the guy who comes after Hitler is, is, is much more benevolent. Really? From the Nazi party? You know, people say, wow, a Roman emperor who's not so bad? Wow. And he did this unusual thing where he said the, the, the rebels against the crown, the soldiers from the Bar Kokhla, now he's letting them be buried. That's an unusual act of chesed. Uh, so they saw in this divine providence. That's the point. At least the Chazal interpreted that way. But they saw the fact that you have a nice guy coming after Hadrian, who was the worst of the worst. That's Ashkacha Pratis.
And they interpret it to mean, this is an example, God is running the show, and therefore is responsible for Jewish survival, which is a miracle. Hevinu, Kisrol, Se Echod Ben that the Jewish people are helpless in the famous mushal, what happens if you throw a lamb into a corral full of 70 wolves? So the chances for survival are very slim. And yet, we do. And the Jewish people, God provides a new leader, a new Gaisha king somewhere, a new Gaisha ruler. And next thing you know, the Jewish people are back in business. They are restored to their physical health and their mental health. And just when, and they saw, it looks like the Jewish people are about to be drowned by a tidal wave. Some politician, right, comes along somewhere, and helps them, right? So to use very simple language, the Jewish people were in a very bad shape 100 years ago. I'm talking about, uh, what shall I say, uh, mentally, uh, you know, that was like the peak years of the Apicurses, uh, if you go back to the First World War time. And you and I know 20 years later it was coming the Holocaust. Uh, and just then, God put in the eyes of the British government to say the Jews can have Palestine, you know, some, that kind of thing. That they, the hearts, you know, lives are beyond Hashem. So in other words, the way they interpret it is to say like this. It's not that Trump is a nice guy. It's Hashem put him there to, to recognize Jerusalem, whatever you call it. You know, th- that way of looking at it, right? It's not Trump. It's the fact that Hashem put a guy like that there to do something. As a matter of fact, he's talking a crazy example. You know, he's so weird, and yet he helped Israel. So the way you say it's like this. Oh, he's a tzaddik. Alternatively, you say like this. Leif sarm b'yad Hashem. Leif sarm b'yad Hashem. You know, it's like that. And therefore, they make this bracha not simply for to celebrate the fact that they allowed the bodies to be buried, which was a big deal. But it was a big deal. But the very fact that it demonstrated that if the Roman government of all places did something that's pro-Jewish, you see that someone is running the show behind the scenes. It, it's the Roman Empire is out front. But there's someone running the show behind the scenes. So in other words, Leif Sarmbi Hashem. And if you're dealing with Hashem, Hashem doesn't want the Jewish people to go down. And from this miraculous, extraordinary survival of the nation, that, they said, will make us believe in the Messianic prophecies. If we see Hashem is running the show here in the Golas, then the same way Hashem is running the show here in the Golas, Hashem will also run the show one day as he promised in the Tanakh and bring Mashiach. That the Nevi'im and our Avos promised us in a uh, in a Murashah, in other in a tradition. Right? Uh, that one day, you know, it'll culminate in Bin Yerushalayim Baritz. Isn't that an interesting thing? Right? And um, now he goes on to say, Vart, this I hold is a little bit forced, but it's a, it's a cute Vart. Why Dafka wine? Because wine is a chitun chasas. 
Remember, the Gemara says you can't do Stam Yenam because, you know, and so he makes a little sermon over here. You know, that they, they made the bracha, Toba Mekdub, Daf Gondi Yayin. So when you drink the, I'll read it to you. I show us a, uh, Belochena Al Yayin Tikna Toba Mekdub, Kizemi Pilis Tomim Dame. It's one of the remarkable aspects of divine providence. I show Uma Kazub and Musim Kaila that this people survive even though we have rules that say we can't intermingle with the Goyim. Uh, and yet we survive among the Goyim. Asher umakazun be musim keila, which have such rules. Asher oslam achitun, right? Ba 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 ba. Be Yisrael im nagu bienu, and we know that when it comes to wine, like Haman said to Achasherish, if they touch it, they throw it away, and so forth. And if, but we maintain that anyway, and that's a sign that we're not depending on really beetsim der chesed, but we're depending on Hashem running the show and leave sarm biyad Hashem. It's a it's an interesting part, but his reconstruction of history to me it was so interesting, especially this week as they say the hey year and all that stuff. This is the way Rameir Simcha uh, lo- looks at it, and it's a very fascinating way. It's a mahalach. It's a very fascinating way to uh, to think about the Jewish past whenever you make the bracha of Hatova Meitu. You don't only do it on wine. There are other cases of Hatova Meitu, like I say, you know, it's a, it's a boy's burn when you hear about a will. And all that sort of thing. You can look it up yourself. If maybe uh, you'll be inspired to go and look up the rules of a Birchas this. But the historical context, I thought, was actually uh, fascinating. So that's what I have to say about Tefillah this week. I want to thank once again Mishpacha Stefanski, as always. And uh, as I said, it's a uh, hot old time in the cat's house today because we have a new edition, Baruch Hashem. Anyway, with that, I wish you all a, a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.